Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq El Amin, and we are broadcasting on WCEB 1450 AM. And we are streaming at WCEB1450.com. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. We invite you to follow us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn and anywhere else that you might get yours. Look for us once again at Radio Islam USA. All right, uh, Radio Islam family, we've got a really... Uh, interesting interesting conversation uh, that we're going to get into today now you may be familiar with the term uh, internet of things devices you may have heard that said uh, you may you may not Uh, but with refrigerators oven ranges thermostats doorbells and home security systems and you know in any other uh, device that you might think of uh, that are now able to connect to your home wi-fi networks there's a very real possibility of having one of those items being used as an entryway for hackers into your home network, right? So this is uh, an increased probability now with where we are now. So uh, recently, the state of California passed legislation on Internet of Things devices. And joining us on the phone is Jason Taché, uh, who covered this in the American Bar Association Journal, uh, which is uh, online. And... uh, want to bring him on, but first I'll let you know a little bit about him. Uh, He is a legal affairs writer uh, who joined the ABA Journal in 2017, and his writing focuses on how technology and data affect the legal system. Uh, He also teaches a uh, course titled Criminal Justice Technology Policy and Law at Georgetown Law Center in Washington, D.C., and he's also the founder and director of Justice Codes and Legal uh, so this is, um, you know, someone who is deeply uh, embedded and well qualified to speak to this. And we're happy to welcome him to Radio Islam. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. So this is a, you know, this is probably not something that um, I think that we think too deeply about on a consumer level. Um, you know, we have a washing machine that can now connect to, to Wi-Fi, you know, that you can you know, you can start from your phone and, you you know, you just think, wow, this is really convenient. Uh, but there, there's a lot more to this. But before we get into that, could you first kind of give us an overview of this uh, particular legislation that just passed? Sure. So this uh, bill was signed by California Governor Jerry Brown uh, earlier this year in September. And the idea is, is that come January 1st, 2020, uh, any IoT device, so that's for household, that's for industry, Uh, sold in California needs to have what the law calls reasonable security features, um, which sounds a little bit amorphous, and I think that's intentional, but Mm -hmm. there's two major components that all IoT devices are going to need uh, if they're going to be legally sold in the state of California. And it's either they need to have a unique password that comes from the manufacturer itself, Mm -hmm. or the device needs to require the user to create a password before they use the device. And this is intended to protect all stored and transmitted data used by any IoT um, technology. 
Right. And, and just reemphasizing for those who may not be familiar with that that uh, uh, that abbreviation there, that uh, an acronym, that IOT Internet of Things, which uh, when I when I read the piece, I was like, wow, because I, I hadn't heard of IOT. Um, but is this law in response to uh, a growing public concern, uh, the end user, uh, or is this primarily due to, you know, kind of forecasting the uh, security probabilities or deficiencies in these particular uh, devices? I think it's a mix of these things. You see growing public concern about how companies are using and protecting our data. I mean, we just saw another headline this week about Facebook yeah. and how they have been sharing user data with other major technology companies. Uh, and so people are becoming more savvy. They're beginning to think more critically about these issues when before I think people wouldn't have given it much of a second thought. Um, but there, there's the corollary that these devices, uh, and it, as you point out, it, we're talking about basically anything that connects to the Internet or has a Bluetooth connection, uh, are prolific now. There's over 7 billion Internet of Things devices around the world, and that number is expected to triple by 2025, according to some estimates. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of these devices, it turns out, were being released into the market without any level of security. I think it's all pretty straightforward for us today to have a four number password on our phones or to have a lock screen on our laptop computers, but these devices didn't have anything of the sort. And so they became uh, pretty easy prey for hackers looking to be able to create what's called a botnet, where you take a lot of devices that you take over uh, by hacking them and then turning their attention against uh, websites that you want to crash or, or, or companies that you want to co cause trouble for. Uh, and so this was happening more and more recently over the last number of years. And so that's a part of the reason why we see a state like California becoming interested in legislating on this issue. Hmm. So I understand it on a on a on a larger scale for the, the corporate scale, you know, having uh, Amazon servers or Netflix or Sony, you know, having their servers go down on them because it, because of uh, an intrusion. Um, but what would that mean on a you know, just an individual level, individual consumer for their Wi-Fi uh, networks for their data. How, how does that How does that look? Sure. So say you have a device that you get for Christmas this year without a password on it, uh, and you connect it, uh, and it's just sitting on your network uh, without any form of security on it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we see them being most commonly used for uh, by hackers are what's called a denial of service attack or a DDoS attack. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is, is that if you get millions of these devices all under your control um, in this thing called a botnet, then you can point their attention towards uh, a particular server or website that you want to take down. This happened, a, a large-scale version of this happened in 2016, where um, a website called DIN, uh, which helps register web domain names was attacked in this manner. And what ends up happening is those devices then just start sending essentially digital gibberish at the website until it overloads and crashes. And so that ended up affecting, as you point out, a lot of major technology companies in the northeast of the U.S. and other regions uh, around the country. Hmm. So uh, this, this, is one, this is one face of, um, I guess, regulation uh, that's also related to, to law enforcement. Um, but how does this how, how does this work in tandem with, um, you know, your local law enforcement uh, and, and their ability to 
to enforce maybe intrusions right now not necessarily um not necessarily not having the passwords and and such on these devices but when an intrusion actually occurs are, are our law enforcement uh agencies on a local level do you think that they're situated in a way to be able to to respond to those types of um uh, activities that's a really good question and and the question and the answer is it depends mm-hmm. there are uh, an estimated 19,000 uh, law enforcement agencies in the United States and that's from federal all the way down to local and tribal mm-hmm. um, and there's going to be different levels of capacity at each one of those levels um, and this is something that local law enforcement uh, struggles with specifically um, as the internet uh, affects more and more aspects of our lives. More crime is shifting onto uh, online uh, opportunities, and I think a lot of law enforcement agents, at least the ones that I talk to in the reporting that I've done and the research I've done, indicate that it's been extremely hard to keep up, uh, to keep people trained, uh, to determine how big of, say, a DDoS attack requires uh, local attention. Obviously, for the bigger uh, events that occur, uh, that are alleged crimes, the federal uh, authorities will get involved, and they are certainly the most technologically advanced in their ability to investigate crimes like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a struggle. And we even see the feds working to, a few years ago, they actually changed the rules around how they can search during an investigation when it comes to computer crimes like this. Right. So we see the law being, uh, as it's supposed to, reactive to these changes in technology. All right. Uh, speaking of the law being reactive, uh, have, have laws changed? And maybe, you know, maybe this might be something that would be on a, a state or municipal uh, level. But have, have we seen laws that are responding, uh, that are being crafted to address intrusion on this, uh, on, on this level? Uh, you know, because you know, we, we've got unlawful entry. You know, if you if physical, you know, you physically have gone into a place that, you know, you have no legal right to be in. Um, but do we have uh, do we have a criminal code or laws that reflect this same, you know, this this new reality that we're in? Um, well, it depends exactly what we're talking about. But certainly the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was passed in the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, still remains one of the biggest uh, components at the federal level in regards to unauthorized access uh, and intrusion uh, using uh, computers. Um, And that's been pretty broadly uh, used Mm -hmm. in regards to basically any type of crime uh, or unauthorized access involving a computer. Um, And so that remains the biggest way that the feds uh, usually go after these types of crimes. at the state level, it's going to vary uh, based on what their local criminal code is, and being that uh, and this is something that's often forgotten, especially today where we saw Congress pass a major criminal justice reform bill, is that the majority, the vast majority of all um, crimes are going to be prosecuted at the local level right. and not at the federal level. And so that's a patchwork um, state to state. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned uh, that there is, is definitely an uh, to, it seems to be intentional. The wording, uh, "reasonable security feature," uh, that's in the language of that uh, of that law. Um, what's the potential impact of that? So I think there's two reasons why you would the legislature would want to define uh, 
reasonable security and not provide more specific examples than the two password uh, examples I gave at the top of the, the interview. Yeah. And the first is that you need flexibility to apply this law across different types of Internet of Things devices. Um, if you're thinking about, say, a Wi-Fi connected conveyor belt at an Amazon plant, uh, that probably has a different level of security concerns than, say, a device that a child is meant to play with right. or a device that's going to be used in a doctor's office. Uh, mm -hmm. So it provides flexibility there. What's reasonable at a warehouse is going to be different than what's reasonable in your home as far as security concerns are. are. The, and the second with reasonable is that, as anybody knows, as technology changes, what's reasonable changes along with it. Uh, while today, I think a lot of people probably are pretty uh, comfortable or familiar with two-factor authentication, where after you put your password into an account, you get a notification to your phone that then confirms you are who you say you are and that you're indeed signing into your account at that time. You know, five, seven years ago, two-factor authentication was not the standard. It probably would not have been considered reasonable in most cases, yeah. uh, but times have changed. Uh, the threats that people face to their digital lives have changed as well. And so as those threats morph, our responses morph, and therefore what is reasonable changes as well. Uh, is there an anticipation or is it already in place um, resistance from, uh, from, from manufacturers, resistance from uh, you know, the, the, those that are manufacturing these products, saying that this puts them in, a, uh, in an undue bind? I haven't seen anything like that. And uh, based on my reporting from what I came up with is that industry and researchers are looking for ways to improve their security already. Oh, that's cool. um, so there's momentum there. Uh, and so I haven't, I haven't seen any large-scale uh, industry complaints. The bill kind of passed at a time where the state of California was actually debating a separate consumer data privacy law. Mm -hmm. uh, that also passed this past year, and that seemed to take a lot of the attention away from this particular bill, both in the press and in the legislature, uh, just because the scope of the other bill was, was much bigger. Um, so perhaps that plays a part as well. But at least for the moment, I don't see a lot of red flags or complaints from industry. All right. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, data is uh, the, the public's data, our data, that is uh, at the forefront of conversation. Um, you know, recently we had... Um, uh, one of the uh, leaders from Google uh, that I think he was called before uh, a house or was it the Senate? Um, can't remember which one, but I know, uh, but this has been something that has been, you know, as a part, as a, you know, central to uh, the, the public conversation and, and there's much more uh, awareness about it. But when it comes to these uh, IOT devices, uh, is there, is there a real, danger uh i mean you know if we're thinking about a washing machine you know for example just throw throw that out there uh, is there a real danger that's behind um what, what data would be associated with uh you know with the washing machine sure so a, a couple of things uh, the the data that's on there obviously could be taken either when it is uh, stored there or when it's in transit if there's no form of protection mm -hmm. uh there but i think probably more specific to say the average person is that it could be a foothold into the house network itself. Mm -hmm. So while the washing machine may not be your, the place you keep all of your online secrets, 
it could be a jump off to get into other aspects of the house's network, including computers or, or cell phones or tablets. Um, but as well, like when we talk about IoT devices, we're also talking about things that people's children play with. And I don't think mm. if uh, a parent would really like the idea that the camera or the speaker on the toy that the child got for Christmas is open either to help see or hear the child play with this particular toy. Um, and so long as there is a lack of security uh, on these devices, those remain very real and possible threats. Mm. Do you think that uh, as uh, technology continues to uh, advance and become more and more integrated into these uh, daily devices that we use, that there's going to uh, that there will come a point, or maybe it's here and we don't hear as much about it, where there becomes this connection between the um, between these devices and also physical, actual physical intrusions, where these devices are being used as a way for uh, for uh, would-be criminals to, you know, to actually make their way into businesses, into homes on a physical, um, uh, on a physical level? That's a good question. I think, especially with the notion of the smart home, where we're putting in, you know, Bluetooth-enabled locks or uh, cameras, um, or, or we have remoteless entry to our cars, all of these things are new factors to consider in regards to what needs to be held secure. If you think about... Uh, Back in the day when you just had a normal key to open up your car, someone would have had to have gotten that key or broken the lock to get in. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is just a different, more digital flavor of that same problem. Um, we even see now there was reporting this year, I believe, by USA Today, where uh, there's a tool that people can buy pretty easily on the market where it can scan for the digital fingerprint of a remote access key fob for a car, for example. Yeah. And so people can go up and down the street, find a copy of that, and then replicate it to get into the car and to, to drive off. Um, and so now, I believe experts in that article were recommending that at night, you put your uh, car key fobs in a tin coffee can uh, to try to block the, the signal from being stolen. Wow. Um, so these are, you know, it, it's somewhat similar to what we would have experienced say, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. but at the same time, uh, the nature of the threat has changed and, and has become more technologically savvy. Yeah, so, you know, as technology advances, so do those who uh, who would seek to use it for their own purposes. Um, they, they also advance with it. So Correct. Um, yeah. uh, is there anything... Uh, that you could see as um, as a as a criminal justice policy expert, uh, someone who covers this type of uh, the covers this field. Do you think there's anything that could have that, that that could have been done in addition to? I mean, any language that could have been added to this law where it could have been more effective? Could they have gone any further? Um, it's always a hard question because, like we were talking about, the reason why they would want to use reasonable is because it needs to be flexible for the law to not be overly cumbersome, but also to be able to evolve as, as technology and threats evolve into the future. Mm -hmm. But I do think probably where the, the law could be expanded upon is to use encryption. Uh, there is an expert I spoke to at Bain named Syed Ali, who was talking about the fact that IoT manufacturers don't have a good control of their supply line. And so what that means is that at some point, a piece of their device could have what's called a backdoor put into it. Hmm. So regardless of the password on the device, 
that manufacturer would still have access into into the device itself. And so if, however, the software required all the data on it to be encrypted uh, both when it's being stored and while it's being uh, moved in transit, then having that backdoor would kind of be a moot point or at least would make it more difficult for that manufacturer to have access to that data regardless of the password situation. So in thinking about where the law could evolve to, requiring encryption on these devices Mm -hmm. uh, could be a component of it. There are some technological hurdles uh, to that being something easily applicable across devices, um, but certainly something to consider as the technology continues to evolve. Hmm. Now, we know that any law is is, is only as uh, effective as its enforcement. So when it comes to uh, IoT devices and, you know, this idea of, you know, if you're going to sell those devices in the U.S., they have to meet this security criteria. Uh, what does what does enforcement look like for that? And is there also the potential um, loophole of of imported devices? Uh, and of course, I know they could be you know domestically uh, produced, but is there a possibility for imported devices that don't meet that criteria? So how does enforcement look for that? Sure. So this particular law gives enforcement to uh, state law enforcement. So everyone from the attorney general's office down to county and city level uh, prosecutors and city attorneys. So it's kind of an open question, however, to how that they will enforce it. Usually in things like this, the attorney general's office will issue some type of advisory or recommendation on how they're going to approach uh, the enforcement of a law like this. And we haven't seen that come out of the California attorney general's office yet. Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, as far as this idea of importing uh, a tool or a, a device that doesn't have these basic password protections that the California law will require, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I think when you talk to legislators in California, they often point to the fact that since their market is so big, when they pass a law like this, mm-hmm. it basically becomes the law of the country, at least as a floor. Um, and they usually point to tailpipe emission standards when yeah. California passed those laws. Uh, companies like Ford and Chevy weren't going to make one set of cars for California and then one set of cars for everybody else. And mm-hmm. so you would uh, expect to see that if someone's going to sell devices in California, then they will just apply the same standards to their devices around the country. All right. So it's not so much a real, real concern as far as state-to-state uh, cooperation, um, but really just kind of following, letting the market itself dictate uh, the policy. Well, you do run the risk of uh, patchwork beginning to be created. As of right now, I believe this is the only law of its kind uh, regarding the security of IoT devices. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you could see a future where New York has a version, Texas has a version, Florida has a version, Illinois has a version, and then that's when things get messy. And (laughs) you would assume industry would begin to pressure Congress to pass a federal law to make a national standard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of that, so going back to the to the federal as far as enforcement is concerned, I go back to that um, uh, to the computer. Uh, you mentioned it uh, just a, a few minutes ago. But as, as far as um, unauthorized access, you know, so on a federal level, how how the FBI is able to um, become involved and investigate. So that being the case federally uh, and this law being put in place in California, uh, and and how it distributes uh, enforcement. When so there's really 
there really isn't anything in, in other states that would allow anybody other than the FBI to, to come in and to, um, uh, and to investigate or hold folks accountable. Is that correct? No. So when I was talking about the FBI earlier, I was talking about criminal statutes at the federal level. Okay. And, and how the FBI uh, can, can charge, and, or the DOJ, rather, the Department of Justice, can, can investigate, charge, uh, and prosecute those types of, of computer crimes. In the case of California's law, that, that's a state-level law. Right. Um, this isn't a criminal statute either. This is a, a standard set uh, in their civil code for industry. Okay. Um, and so the penalties would be civil as well. Um, and that would all be handled by state law enforcement in the state of California. Okay. All right. I got you. All right. Well, this is certainly uh, some interesting, interesting uh, stuff. And I'm, I'm really interested to see how uh, other states are going to uh, respond if this is going to kind of set off a wave. Uh, because, you know, if, if California, as you mentioned, if California being as big, having the big, the market that it has uh, and the impact that it has when it comes to regulation, um, I'm, I'm interested to see if that's going to carry over uh, to places like, you know, Illinois, where I am. So that'll be something. So we thank you very much for the, uh, for the, for the insight on this uh, law and IOT devices. Uh, and I know when, when uh, in your introduction I mentioned that you're also the uh, founder of Justice Codes. Could you tell us a bit about what, what, that, uh, what that work entails? Sure. So we are a nonprofit based in Baltimore City, Maryland, and we focus on building, implementing, and testing technology in the criminal justice space that is meant to work against the history of mass incarceration and racial inequality in the criminal justice system. Hmm. Now, how did that come about? Um, Well, my first job out of law school, well, really my second job out of law school, was focused on juvenile justice reform in Maryland and Baltimore, Mm -hmm. uh, where I was lobbying on a lot of policy issues. And I felt like the work that we were doing to try to improve the laws to help these communities disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system weren't translating into the communities themselves. And I thought technology would be a means to improve that. And so the work really started on a focus on what's called expungement or like an erasure of people's criminal records. Yeah. Uh, and we were, we were passing these laws, we were expanding the statute, uh, but the communities impacted by over-policing weren't necessarily uh, taking advantage of the, the change laws. So we built some tools around uh, expungement to put the resources online to help people get through that process. Uh, and then we replicated something like that in, in Mississippi as well for their access to justice commission. And uh, since then, we've, we've expanded more uh, into looking at, the, I guess, the ecosystem of Justice Tech more broadly. We run a website called justicetech.info, where we collect data and technology projects that look to impact the criminal justice system from around the country mm-hmm. to just keep a sense of what's going on, how people are working on these issues, and, and what their impact is. Mm. Now, I, I imagine that there is a, uh, that there's an education process that goes along with um, off with, with making those, uh, uh, you know, websites, making technology accessible. Um, is that something that's done in tandem as you, as you, you know, you set up a, a site that helps folks uh, work on expungement or is that, is it kind of like a one, then a number two uh, thing? 
We, we've historically partnered with organizations that are already working to do that educational piece mm-hmm. in the communities that they work with, whether it's uh, librarians, the faith community, uh, those in legal aid, uh, in the jurisdictions that we're building the tools for. And so the hope is that the online tool bolsters or helps them scale the work that they're already doing. Um, but uh, to your point, it's critical. You can't just build a new website, put it online, and then expect anything to change. It needs to be tied to education and community organizing. Right. Well, this is uh, is great. Uh, That's a great effort, uh, much needed. And, yeah, yeah, continued uh, success uh, with that. Uh, Folks, our guest has been Jason uh, Jason Taché, legal affairs writer with the ABA as well as the founder, director of Justice Codes, which you just heard about. And uh, one more time, give the Radio Slam family your social media, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So uh, my personal is uh, at, on, for Twitter, it's at JTashe, J-T-A-S-H-E-A. And for the organization, we're at Justice Codes. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, we're looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. Thank you. All right. All right, Radio Islam family, uh, we are going to take a short, short break, but we will return. This is Radio Islam, and we're on WCEV, 1450 AM. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811 brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. You're not wired to have a response to this sound, but when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we're helping to stop food waste. Save the food. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. 
This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. Uh, we're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember, keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. Really easy, at Radio Islam USA. Uh, also, you can stop by RadioIslam.com to check out all of our previous programming. Uh, you can check out guest bios, uh, pictures, and just kind of stay up to date with what's going on with the Radio Islam family. Um, and also, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. So we are wherever you get yours at. We're on SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. So subscribe, rate, and review. All right, Radio Islam family. Uh, there is, man, there's just so much that is, uh, I guess, swirling through my head. Uh, and I've mentioned uh, previously that as we get closer to the end of the year, this is like that assessment um, of oneself as an individual to see what you have accomplished and to uh, think about this upcoming year and, uh, and to and to really start charting out goals, right, to go into the year intentionally into this new year. And one of the things that I do is I uh, I try to take stock of what have been the beneficial sources uh, for me, uh, throughout this year or throughout the, the, the outgoing year. And whether those be, uh, people, uh, they be organizations, whether they be, uh, you know, books or whatever the resource is, but to think about the different ways that I have, I have benefited, what has contributed to my growth. Uh, and then also quite honestly, what has maybe what has kept me back a bit, what are the areas that I have uh, that I have lagged in and what are the I don't want to say resources. That's not really the right way to, to think about it. But what are the what are those uh, impediments? What have become obstacles for me uh, and and to really assess those things in an honest way so that this new year, uh, it's a better year. It's more productive. Now, I mentioned all that to say. Uh, this, as you all know, Radio Islam is a Sound Vision production. So, if you enjoy the the uh, programming here on Radio Islam, if you felt that the discussions that we've had, you felt that the uh, the guests that we've had on, that the perspective that we've brought to uh, to different issues, that it's been valuable, that it's helped your own thinking, right? Not that we necessarily are giving the answers, but that that just that we're stirring the imagination, that we're stirring the thought process. Uh, that has been a beneficial thing. And uh, we want to tell you that the benefit that you hopefully that you found uh, in this program, that you also are aware of the uh, the benefit that is waiting for you. If you're not aware of it at soundvision.com. Yes. All right. Same uh, shameless plug. It's, it's really not even a shameless plug. It's just really because it's all one. It's all one family. Right. You know that uh, Radio Islam is a Sound Vision production. So the content is what I really want to talk to you about uh, as we kind of close out here. Um, the content that you're going to find on soundvision.com is extremely uh, valuable. And it begins with uh, it begins with our president uh, and founder, Abdul Malik Mujahid, uh, and also um, our director of content, Samana Siddiqui, uh, and many other staff writers. Now, at soundvision.com, you're going to find articles on education, politics, marriage, parenting, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and prayers be upon him, uh, interfaith cooperation, social activism, 
humanitarian causes, you know, and, and on and on and on. Just so much, so much more. Now, I remember at a recent Salvation dinner during a video presentation, uh, there was a brother who was given a testimony to the value of Adam's World, right? Adam's World, the, the, the children's program. Uh, and he said that he learned the Afatia, which is the op opening chapter of the Quran, uh, by watching Adam's World. Right, and that's that's man. Just the the the, the blessings in that just are are, are amazing. Um, but then he went on. He, I mean, he went a step further, and he said that through Adam's world, that his wife, his wife learned about and eventually embraced Islam as her faith. So to that we say, Alhamdulillah. The praise be to God. Uh, God is greater, uh, and we realize that in providing this particular. Uh, product providing this 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 um, this window uh, into Islam. This window uh, that this was not a window. This this was a doorway providing this doorway uh, that through it many people. This is just two people that I'm mentioning here. This brother that that gave the testimony, and then he's talking about his wife. But we know that over the years that many people have gone through this particular doorway have found uh have found islam and that is a, that's a beautiful thing that is there's so much blessing uh that we pray is on all of those who are involved um with that and that uh and that they also be a blessing to others now i want to share an excerpt from a recent article that you can read in its entirety on salvation.com by Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, and it's entitled The Prophet's Three C's of Success. And I think this is going to be particularly valuable for those who are activists among us. I think everybody's going to find value, but I think specifically for that particular group, uh, you will you will find and uh, you will see the value in this particular um, article. So like I said, you can go to salvation.com to read the article. In its entirety. So I'm just going to read. I'm going to start off with. Um, I'll start here. The prophet developed three key strategies grounded in Quran. Following these three success strategies, now is Sunnah or the path of the prophet for us. And I call them the three C strategies. Now remember, I am uh, reading really verbatim from the article uh, by Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid. Now, number one, communication. The Prophet used each and every means of communication available at that time in Arabia to convey his message. So the path of the Prophet, Sunnah, for us is to use each and every means of communication available in our time for the prophetic mission of establishing peace, justice, fairness, and equity in the society. Uh, growing up, uh, he goes on to say, Growing up, I attended a madrasa in Pakistan where students were required to read pre-Islamic poetry, which was the primary communication in the Prophet's time. I noticed that the Prophet used every available method. This included inviting people, hanging a notice on the door of the Kaaba, dinners, visiting Mecca's 14 flea markets, and more. Now, we cannot work on the prophetic mission of peace and justice, which he assigned us in his last sermon at the Mount of Arafah, without connecting and communicating effectively with others. We must observe what means of communication are used in our time, what methods are most effective, and do our duty. This is what God will ask us about. So let us ask ourselves now. 
Number two, care for humanity. We must become better human beings ourselves, individually, to be able to carry the prophetic mission of helping people to stand up for peace, justice, fairness, and equity. And the only way we become better human beings is by taking care of those who are oppressed or in need. Throughout the Quran, we see this. In Surah Al-Ma'un, in the Quran, this is chapter 107, God mentions two sets of the characteristics of the person who denies faith. The first set is that they do not care for the hungry. They turn away the orphan and do not share what they have. The second is that they are lazy in their prayers. Taking care of God's creation along with worshiping the creator are therefore inextricably linked and twin tests of one's faith. God expects us to take care of others purely to please him without even expecting a thank you or reward in return. This godliness is a requirement to carry God's message of the prophetic mission of peace, justice, fairness, and equity in this world. The prophet took care of people regardless of their religion, and he did this not only when he gained a position of relative peace and power in Medina, but even when he was suffering in Mecca. An example of this is when a stranger approached him seeking help because Abu Jahl, the tormentor of Muslims, had taken his goods without a payment. The prophet could have turned him away, excusing himself that he had no power to help him, given the desperate state of the Muslims at that time. But he did not. He approached Abu Jahl, who returned the money despite his ongoing abuse of the prophet. It took me some time to realize that when you take care of other human beings, no matter what state you are in, it makes you a better person. If you are not at a higher level of human being, you cannot carry a higher level message to others. That is why the prophets were always the best in character and were those who cared for the weak and desperate. Muslims were the poor, needy, and slaves. Yet Allah told them to take care of others, not just Muslims, but everyone, regardless of faith. Number three, coalition building. Along with care for humanity and using all means of communication available to him, building coalitions and alliances were another success strategy of the prophet. Here is what author Karen Armstrong says about it. The prophet built a peaceful coalition of tribes and achieved victory by an ingenious and inspiring campaign of nonviolence. End of quote. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and the Muslims were a minority in Mecca, as well as in Medina, almost all of his life. Building coalition and alliances that cross religious and tribal lines was essential to the Prophet's success. He reached out to those who were not Muslim for assistance, even as he sought help with Allah for his struggles. Even at the time of strong conflict, God recommended Muslims to cooperate in what is good and right. And do not let the hatred of a people in shutting you out of the sacred mosque lead you to transgress. Still cooperate in righteousness and piety, but do not cooperate in sin and aggression. And fear God. Indeed, God is severe in penalty. From Quran, chapter 5, the second verse, second ayat. The prophet believed in coalition building, alliances, and coexistence. So much so that he negotiated 12 treaties, even in Medina, his peace sanctuary, that established the religious rights of Jews, 
Christians, and pagans in the city-state. These emphasize the importance of Muslims treating their non-Muslim co-citizens and neighbors with liberty, justice, respect, and dignity. The Prophet began developing alliances and coalitions even before he got to Medina. While in Mecca, on his return from his trip to Taif, the Prophet was barred from the city by Abu Lahab. This would be the modern-day equivalent of stripping him of citizenship from the land of his birth. He sought help for this. Finally, Mutam ibn Adi, a mushrik who never accepted Islam, even after the Prophet invited him to do so, stepped forward. He was his sponsor and ensured that the Prophet returned to Mecca unharmed. The Prophet recognized Mutam, praised him, and the Muslims of Medina honored him in the best way they could when he died, with poetry of Hassan bin Thabit, the poet of the Prophet, who recited poetry in praise of Mutam standing in the Prophet's mosques. We conclude with, Christian missionaries and Islamophobes blame the Prophet that he went around conquering people, spreading Islam with the sword. Unfortunately, extremists like ISIS also believe that. The fact is that Prophet Muhammad spent only six days and his entire life of 22,000 plus days in battle, as God asked him to defend his peace sanctuary from both sides Less than 400 people died. His main success strategies were using all means of communication, being caring to all, and developing coalition and alliances for the common cause of establishing peace, justice, fairness, and equity, his prophetic mission. Like the prophet, we must not just pray, but act as well. However, actions must be well thought out, planned out, and put in place. As I said, you can read the article in its entirety at soundvision.com. Um, when I think about activism in the United States, particularly among Muslims, and how these uh, aforementioned strategies are being employed, I also realize the importance of real commitment. Excuse me, real commitment from those who we enter coalitions with. And this brings me to uh, my next thought. Right now, Linda Sarsour, um, and who for the uh, for the benefit of those who don't know Sister Linda, uh, is a Palestinian-American Muslim woman who is uh, one of the most recognizable Muslim civil rights activists in the United States today. Uh, she was the one of the uh, national co-chairs for the Women's March, uh, whose attendance in 2017, I like to say dwarfed, that of the inauguration of President Trump. Now, today, there are calls for Linda Sarsour, along with uh, another one of the another one of the other uh, national co-chairs, I think, uh, sister na last name Mallory, uh, to step aside because of accusations of anti-Semitism. Now, in the case of Linda, now this is largely brought on by her pro-Palestinian stance. Now, um, and of course, her uh, uh, BDS um, boycott, divest and sanction uh, support uh, with regard to the policies of Israel. Now, I want to step back for a second. Now, this did not just begin. Now, last year, 2017, when a Somali Muslim woman was assaulted by a white man uh, and Linda uh, stepped up and encouraged folks to donate 
uh, to her to her uh, recovery and, uh, you know, just uh, to her. She was attacked by Courtney Love. Now, some of you may or may not know who Courtney Love is. Uh, she tries to sing. Uh, she was married to the um, uh, to the lead singer of Nirvana. And uh, the whole teen spirit, right? Seattle grunge. <clears throat> but anyway, Courtney Love uh, lent her voice in opposition to her. First of all, saying that the the um, uh, the account of this woman being attacked was not true. Uh, she also went on to uh, say she called her a vile disgrace to women and all mankind and something to the effect of she would never follow a, uh, a movement or organization that had it at its helm uh, an anti-Semite, right? Or something like that. Uh, to which Linda replied, welcome to America where a white woman celebrity uses her platform to deny that a black immigrant Muslim woman was brutally assaulted. Uh, and I mentioned this, I mentioned this because I think it's important to remember that once you are in the crosshairs, uh, once you have, uh, once people are listening to you, uh, once you are seen to have the necessary commitment and, and the backbone that's required for, uh, to, to stand against those oppressive uh, and repressive policies uh, to stand up and speak truth to power, then people are going to look for different ways to try and uh, try and attack you, different ways to try to break you down and different ways to try to tear at the seams of those, uh, you know, th that you have been able to, to pull together organizations, coalitions, groups, uh, any of the bonds that you've been able to forge, you're going to find people who are going to look for particular ways to undo those, uh, undo those bonds. Now I have a problem. I have a problem with the idea that you can be labeled an anti-Semite simply because you openly express your opposition to the oppression of the Palestinian people, or you oppose the apartheid like practice, uh, uh, that, uh, of, of the Israeli state. Now we've actually had folks on the program, uh, with that we've talked to, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Parker, uh, if, if you want to hear his uh, firsthand accounts of his own research and, and his time, uh, I, I would recommend go back and check that out. Just just look up Parker and you, you'll find that particular uh, episode in that conversation. Uh, but it is is it's basically tantamount to calling someone un-American for opposing mass incarceration of black and brown people or for uh, opposing the killing of unarmed black men by our police. Now, can't we simply just have uh, a problem with the behavior? I mean, is that possible? I mean, is that logical to say that, look, if you stop attacking me, then I'll stop protesting you. Right now, what this really shows is that even though we like to say that Trump is way off base when he talks about fake news and that that that's those on the left, you know, the liberal side, the Democrats uh, in general, um, we like to say that Trump is off base when he talks about fake news, that he's really done it to undermine uh, the uh, integrity and the faith that the American people have in the new in the media. He is actually telling the truth. Believe it or not, he's actually telling the truth. But the difference is he is not doing it for the sake of the truth. He's doing it to kill the truth. So we recognize this. But the fact that he is actually on target with this, uh, the irony is not lost on me. So Linda Sarsour 
is being taken to task. She's being attacked for what is the equivalent of uh, a modern day Montgomery bus boycott. Which took place during the 50s, right? During the civil rights movement, which was also in response, in response, in response to systemic uh, racism and oppression. So this boycott, divest, sanction movement has been labeled as an attack on Israel. And there is legislation popping up all over the place. Now, currently, there are about 20. There are 26 states, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that have anti-BDS legislation enacted, including Illinois. There's also uh, legislation introduced or pending in 13 other states. So we're we're in a very um, a very interesting interesting time uh, one that is really dripping with hypocrisy and the hypocrisy is that our politicians like to talk about the rule of law and our idealists like to remind us that no one is above the law but what do you do when the law is crooked what do you do when the law is repressive what do you do when the law is cruel if you're an American you protest right that's what we do we protest we boycott, but that right, that right is in jeopardy right now. And it's in, it's in jeopardy by those who are not interested in justice. They're not in, interested in equity or peace. They're not interested in those things because what they are really interested in, they're interested in privilege. They're interested in positioning themselves in such a way where um, that everything that you do it must take into consideration their privilege. They are simply interested in maintaining their privilege. That is it. So, Sister Linda, continue fighting. And all those who are committed to justice, continue standing together. Because those who aren't will continue to show their real colors. And it does not mean that... Um, I have to go back. I have, I have to uh, g give you this quote. Uh, I, I believe it was Ted Koppel that was interviewing uh, the late Nelson Mandela. And somebody got up from the audience and they started talking about Cuba and they, start, start, they started talking about Yasser Arafat and his relationships with them uh, and, and basically trying to get him to denounce them. And I love his response and his response was valuable then and it's probably even more valuable today. He says... What you all make the mistake of is you make the mistake of believing that your enemies are our enemies. And we also have to realize that even as we build coalitions here in the United States that that span uh, different identities, different experiences, uh, that we have to look at what is our end game and not make demands on one another that um, that put that end game in jeopardy. Uh, this is not a zero sum game. And I think that is what we've we've we find ourselves in uh, is that I will only I will only stand with you as long as you are standing. According to my uh, to my dictate. So. Sister Linda, keep standing, keep standing, keep standing. And all you who are committed to justice and equity uh, and peace, keep standing uh, and. Uh, and don't be deterred. 
I remind you all that SoundVision is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization. We encourage your uh, continued support for it and Radio Islam. We thank you for listening, and we thank our sponsor, Zakat Foundation US. We thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul-Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs, and not to be taken as a representation of SoundVision Foundation. And with that, good people, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.